Good morning, everyone. Give me a second. Uh, my name is Femi Shikoya. I'm one of the elders here, and I'll be helping us continue worship by reading the scripture from Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You know my folly, O God. My guilt is not hidden from you. May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. O Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. O God of Israel, for I endure scorn for your sake and shame covers my face. I am a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my own mother's sons. For zeal for your house consumes me and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me and I am the song of the drunkards. But I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire, do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution, a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those who you wound, and they talk about the pain of they, and they and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. I am in pain and distress. May your salvation, O God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. The word of the Lord, and the first people. Thanks, Femi. <clears throat> Let's pray. God, as we spoke earlier, I pray that you'd be... Um, with the people of India in general, 
the people of Andhra Pradesh and the people affected um, in the ministries of serving alongside international in particular, and most specifically in particular, these members of Manohar's family, particularly his brother-in-law who's in critical condition. We pray for, um, for you to help. We pray for you to heal. We pray for you to spiritually strengthen those who can do good to others. We pray um, for justice to be done medically and that the name of medical doctors could be um, seen with greater moral strength rather than to be besmirched because of bad actions in these times. We pray that you would, you would rally the people and the infrastructure and the, even the governmental leaders in that country to do good to those people. We pray for the salvation of many. We pray that your name would somehow do better, would be seen for what it is, and that you would be better known through the horrible tragedies that are happening at this time. We pray particularly for our friend and brother Manohar that you would strengthen him in all the things that he must do, all the people he's talking to on Zoom, all the people he's trying to encourage and pray for, the pastors he's trying to show how to lead through this time, and, um, and in the care and weight he's carrying for these family members even as he's grieving this week the death of his father. Father, please strengthen him by your spirit in an incredibly mighty way and help us to know how we can support our brother in Jesus' name. We also pray now that you would, you would release your truth to your people through this psalm and help me to preach it faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, you can hear the pain of people oftentimes when they give testimonies like that one we just heard from the Hales. And you can kind of even if you're not into poetry, you can kind of pick up on what it feels like to have the waters come up to your neck, to have your voice hoarse from calling out for help, and to feel like your eyes are at the level of the water, like you could get engulfed at any moment. Like, there's just nothing left. There's nothing to put your foot on. When the way that wave crests and you can see as far as you can see, you do not see a rescue boat, and you really can't even yell anymore. Right? That, is a, that is a place, that is a pit, that is an engulfment that people feel. And, um, People who are faithful to God, believe in him faithfully, follow him faithfully, are not in any sense immune to that human experience. We're not immune to it at all. In fact, like I'll say in just a minute here, um, there are ways in which we are more susceptible to it. Right? Psalm 69 is seen not just in the Old Testament as the Psalm of David, but it's quoted a number of times in the New Testament to represent the lament of the, of the godly or pious sufferer. So much so that Jesus in the New Testament becomes the perfect fulfillment of Psalm 69. In all four Gospels, when Jesus is on the cross, every Gospel writer records people, him, people offering him soured wine or vinegar when he's on the cross and in thirst to represent that in the midst of his death, he lacked all compassion of people around him as he was a sufferer. That he was the perfect pious sufferer. That the insults that people threw on God fell on him. That, that zeal for God's house had consumed him and made these enemies for himself, and that he had been put on the cross because he had been the pious sufferer of Psalm 69. And all the people who hate David all hated him. And ultimately, it was his piety, his devotion to the Father and the purposes of the Father and his work that had to be done on the cross for our salvation that was done so that the only word left was not the word of judgment. Right? When David gets to the end, he says, he says, God, destroy them. That's just. David isn't being petty. He's asking for justice. He's asking for what the people who hate him without cause deserve. And the pious sufferer knows that. 
He, the pious sufferer knows they haven't done anything to deserve how they're being treated, and therefore what's being done to them is blameworthy, and that which is blameworthy creates guilt and the deserving nature of judgment. And he calls for it here, and the only difference between David and Jesus relative to Psalm 69 is Jesus, at least on the cross before the end, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Right? He's, he's dying for their scorn as the perfect sufferer. And when you believe in Jesus and you come to follow Jesus and you belong to him, you choose willingly to step into the role of Psalm 69. One of the things that, um, um, that you have to recognize is that in this psalm, the focus here is not losing a child or losing a job or your marriage not going well or something like that. The focus in the psalm, the, the terrible thing that's being faced here, is actually people hating you because of your love for God. That's what it's about. That, that for people who give their hearts in faith to what you could call true piety, real belief in God, that, that people don't often respond well to that. So like, you know, if you're young and you hope everybody's going to like you in your, in your life, it just, just, you should know right now that not everybody's going to like you. Some people are not going to like you, and some people are going to hate your guts. And it's going to be like, like inexplicable. You just don't know why these people hate you. And they just do, right? And there's a, there's a worse truth than that, which is this, that that's especially true if you have real piety. Like if you really believe in God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to define that for you. So what piety means, at least what it means in Scripture, is something like this. Real devotion to God as he reveals himself in personal identification— heart, passion, doctrinal interest, worshipful practice, and practical obedience. Okay, I could easily preach a whole sermon on that, but it's, that is, it's, it's devote, it's rooted in devotion to God as he reveals himself, not as we make him up to be, which is a huge difference between people with real piety and people without real piety. People without real piety make up God in their own image. They don't listen to God's word. They don't look carefully at his Christ and seek to have their mind reshaped around God as he reveals himself. And so they end up worshiping an idol, a God that they've created rather than the God that is. So this is a critically important part. God as he reveals himself. And then in personal identification, I belong to God, heart, soul, and mind. I'm his personally, right? To a heart passion. I actually deeply emotionally care. More than I care about anything else. Doctrinal interest. I actually want to know the truths that God shows about himself so that I can respond to them and I can live by them. Worshipful practice. That is, I actually recognize that as a human being, my heart isn't going to naturally be for God all the time. <coughs> Sorry. And so I have to do the sorts of things that help human hearts get reoriented to God. In this passage, David is fasting. He's mourning for that which is wrong and sinful in the culture around him. He's, he's, he's trying to see the God, emotion God would have, and to have the emotion God would have towards the world instead of the emotion people are having, right? He is—he's um, he's worshiping at the end of the psalm. He says, I'm going to worship God even though I feel really bad. I'm going to honor him, and I'm going to so honor him, committing myself to just truth. To, I'm going to do what's right in God's name, that the humble or the poor, that is disempowered people, will look at me worshiping God and say, that's going to be good for me. Right? It says the humble or the poor will see it and be glad. When they see people really give their hearts to God in piety, pledging to do what is good and right before him in full obedience, the people who can get hurt by our power go, oh, this is going to be great. 
There's a proverb that says that, right? Like, the king is just, the poor rejoice, right? And then it's in practical obedience. In fact, a lot of what David is getting attacked for is not the views or doctrines he holds inside of his heart, but the spiritual practices and acts of obedience he actually does out there in the world. That's what he's hated for. Does that make sense? And piety is, is just what the Bible calls real faith. But real faith includes all of that. Does that make sense? Now, here's what I want to say you can, you can take with you and understand as an incredibly important spiritual principle that applies as much today as it did 3,000 years ago with David, 2,000 years ago with Jesus, and Christians all through the last 2,000 years. This principle is fundamental to Christian faith, growing in intimacy with God. It's also a non-religious human principle for all intimacy and relationship as well, because God created reality. And that is this, that piety plus scorn equals persevering intimacy. Piety plus scorn equals persevering intimacy. Now, impiety plus scorn equals splitting up, losing your faith. But if, if we have real piety, and then we face scorn, what happens is, instead of allowing that, the pressure that that puts on us to divide us from God, we'll have that pressure, we'll use that pressure to push us toward God. And when we turn to God in all the scorn and difficulties of the pressure that our, these things create in our lives, it will pressure us, the, it'll push us together with God in deep intimacy rather than tear us apart and, and cause us to scorn God and become one of his mockers because we succumbed to the pressure and intimidation of his mockers. Does that make sense? So let's go through a, point, a couple of points on this. The first is that the pious are going to consistently feel scorn. You seniors, you already know this, probably from your schooling already. You're going to know it even more when you go to the colleges that you go to and go through life. This is particularly true for the young. If you're, if you're a kid, if you're in school, if you're like, because here's the thing, when you're in adolescence or when you're in young adulthood, you're building your life. You're trying to figure out who you are. And so the acceptance of others and other people opening doors for you, you know that's critically important for your success. And so you want to be accepted so badly. In early adolescence, you want to be accepted and affirmed by people outside of your family so that you know how you're different from and your family and that you're your own person. As you're trying to get a job or go to college, you need people to accept you, so you want to tell them what they want to hear, right? You want to have friends and other people who affirm you in your life. There's all kinds of these incentives happening all around you, which are saying, hey, listen, like conform, <laughs> right? It's, it's so funny how young people often think that they're the most independent, that they're the most creative, because they want to reject their elders. So if compared, com as compared to earlier generations, sometimes they're, quote, original or different, as compared to, to each other, there's no more conforming group than the young. They all conform to each other. And it's not because they're worse or, or, or stupid or something. It's just because, like, I already have my job. I already have my wife. I already know who I am. I already have a bank account. I already know what I'm doing. I already know how I am as a man. I'm not deciding any of those things anymore. I don't care what you think of me. And the older I get, the more that's true. Have you ever met, like, an 85-year-old widow? Right? I mean, she'll fart right in front of you. She doesn't care what you think. And she doesn't have to. And, and, and uh, psychologists have said that, like, as people get older, they act more stere stereotypically to their gender. Men act more like men as they get older. Women more like women. Why? And they think it's because you intentionally, when you're younger, act more androgynous. You don't want to be too feminine or too masculine because then certain people won't approve of you. So you kind of, like, you play the middle. You're not too much yourself. Because you have to have doors open for you, right? 
There's older people who's just like, whatever, stupid people. That's why it's okay for them to hate the news and like watch whatever they want. And they don't care what you think. And you can yell at them and old people are like, I don't listen. I don't care. I don't care. Right? It's because they don't need any more doors open for them. They don't need your approval. They know who their friends are. Do you understand? It's actually a really great humanly stabilizing thing that they don't care what you think. Right? And so um, we, if you're young, you need to realize this. If you add to yourself an identity in Christ, not nominal religiosity, where you say you're a Christian, you say you're religious. I'm talking about real piety, where you worship the God who is as he reveals himself, as a, as a thing of identity for you, as a real thing of heart piety, where you're interested in what he teaches about our lives doctrinally, where you actually practice the spiritual devotion so you can be formed humanly, and you actually obey him practically. I mean, that level of real devotion, if you do that, listen, you are going to subject yourself to quite a lot in fairly consistent human scorn. If we work our way through this psalm, you can see this kind of again and again, right? As you work through the psalm, there's all these different groups of people. David's like, these people hate me for this reason. These people hate me for that reason. Right? So in verses 4 to 6, right, it's the, it's the self-righteous that hate him. Right? He says, Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Right? There's people who think they understand things morally. They think that they can judge it. Right? They think they're better than him. And he hasn't even done anything wrong. But they look at something he's done, and something that he's done, he's saying in his devotion to God, and they find fault with it morally and judicially. They're like, that's unjust, that's wicked, and they think they have the right to judge him for that. He's like, there's tons of those people. Now, granted, David is a public figure, so he has more people criticizing him than most. But you'll find this true of yourself as a microcosm. You see this among the irreligious in verses 8 and 9, right? He says, in verses 8 and 9, he says, I am a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my own mother's sons. Right? You, even within your own family, this can be the case. And there's an alienation where, like, people just don't believe like you. And what you believe is so dear to you and so forming of your personality and character that it defines you, right? And what that creates with people who don't share that is a certain kind of fundamental existential human estrangement. And that can happen even with people as close as people in your own family. Same thing is true of people with um, impious religious impulses. Like, look at verses 10 and 11. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Now, it's—if you read this carefully, it's reasonable to assume he's, he's a Jew. He's living in Israel. Like, these people around him, they're not mostly atheists. They're, like, nominally religious Jewish people, but they don't like the way he's being religious, right? And you'll find that if you pursue real piety. If you—if all you care about is honoring the Lord and not how other people think of you, not whether other religious people approve of you. You just care about honoring Jesus, right? You're never going to do it right in other people's eyes. Somebody's, like, one of the things that's kind of annoying about living in Madison and pastoring in Madison is trying to live this out. There are numerous conservative pastors that think I'm an apostate that doesn't know how to serve Jesus and doesn't know how to stand up for God. And there are there are minority-majority pastors, and there are liberal pastors, and there are other evangelical pastors that just think I'm doing it wrong all the time right? And that's probably true for a bunch of them, too. And it's my job to not care, right? And that's true for you, too. There's going to be all kinds of people who would call themselves Christians. They might even be churchgoers. They might even consider themselves profoundly religious people, and they're going to look at you, and they're going to be like, why do you do that? 
right? I mean, think about, like, if you literally really did fast, right? All four of you, right? Like, you fast. Like, honest to God, you, like, you go without food in mourning and supplication to God. Like, you're, you're calling out to God. You recognize that there is deprivation in the world that you care about, that you are doing an act of mourning because you know the world is full of people rejecting God, and that is an incredible cosmic injustice of which the proper emotion is mourning constantly, right? And yet everybody's full of levity and laughing it up. Right? While well, they hate God's guts, and you're and like just passively and passive-aggressively, and you're like, God, I wish it wasn't like this. And pe- people, what do you think people are going to do that? How do you think they respond to that? What do you think they would do if you like didn't shower and didn't do your hair and wore crappy clothes as like a symbol of like mourning before God? Right? They would make fun of you. They'd make fun of you. Christians would make fun of you. People in this church would make fun of you. Right? Even if you did it in, because you were pursuing God in an ever-deepening piety, you really wanted to feel his feelings, to think his thoughts, and to know his ways, to look at the world the way he sees it, and to, and to internalize that so it's the way you feel it. The result is going to be, even among pretty religious people oftentimes, just dislike of you. Because you know what always is true? Let me think about this. What if you just read the Bible every day and pray every day? And then you say that out loud and people know that about you and they don't right? People naturally feel judged. Like, people will call you judgmental even if you never say a word. Because your choice to live a certain way always, by contrast, is saying something to the way other people choose to live. If you come to church like every week you can, if you actually worship, you sing the songs, and you say the poetry, and you pray prayers to God that you believe is there, and when the scripture is read, you like listen to it like it is the word of God written and has the capacity to change your life radically. And it's, the, it's a gift from Almighty God to transform you and to save you. Like if you do that stuff, really? How do you think you will be regarded? How do you think you'll be regarded here at High Point Church? I don't know. I don't know. You might have started a sermon thinking that you were David in a psalm. Hopefully I've convinced some of us that sometimes at least we're not. And then you see this, he says, um, he's mocked at the city gates, right? That's the powerful people, right? Transactions and financial and land transactions were done at the city gate. So that he's mocked at the city gates means that all the powerful people are making fun of him, the cynical people, right? And then he's also, so so the rich CEO people are making fun of him and the centralist fools who are just drinking it up at the bar are making fun of him. Everybody makes fun of him. From the most powerful to the most foolish to the people who like are really disciplined in their life and are accomplishing a lot and are in, you know, in power to the people who like really don't care and they just want to get wasted. And the whole spectrum in between, he is mocked and made fun of. Right? You might think, well, that, this is not a very encouraging sermon, right? Well, listen, you will be encouraged and strengthened if you know what to expect in life. A big part of our discouragement is bad expectations. Right? So the result of this is he says, listen, the result, Lord, is I am scorned and disgraced and shamed. Now, it's important to recognize, have you ever seen those, like, Bible promises things? Hey, there's Bible promises. This is, this is like, Bible promises will unlock your faith, right? Okay, there's a bunch of Bible promises about persecution, which is scorn, shame, and derision that we'll receive for following Jesus with real piety. Here's just some of them. It's actually a quite promised thing in the Bible. Not because God wants to shove it in your face, but because he wants you not to ignore it and to be fully prepared for it. 
Because not only is it a danger to our faith, it is a, it is a benefit of our faith, right? Now, secondly, it's important to recognize that scorn, disgrace, and shame take their toll. Scorn, disgrace, and shame take the, their toll. Um, listen, you can deny scorn, disgrace, and shame, or you can pretend it doesn't affect you, right? Um, one approach to shame is this, is to define shame as the belief that you're not worthy of love, which of course in our therapeutic culture is ridiculous I'm worthy of love, and so therefore I don't have to pay attention to that emotion. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. I, like I get there's TED Talks on it even. Doesn't work. I don't care what people say. Um, we feel from other people social disintegration and social disapproval. Fundamental to the human experience as, like, as a group creature is we naturally have the moral sense of how an objective observer from our own group would judge our behaviors. And if you believe that an objective observer from your group would judge your behavior to be wrong, you will believe it's wrong, you will feel that it's wrong, and you will feel shame, and that is a productive emotion. It's not a destructive emotion. It's a productive emotion. Because it's saying, look, you shouldn't do that. And what it drives you to do is not to say, well, I'm not worthy of love and into a tailspin of psychological destruction. What it's meant to do is to move you into a reparative set of actions. Repentance. I did something wrong. Who did I hurt? How do I apologize to that person? Seek to restore that relationship. Is there any amends or restitution that I can make in that relationship? Is there a way I can rebuild trust with that person, with the social group I'm a part of, so that we can have peace and righteousness and belonging and ultimately intimacy? Right? That's why the Bible dis distinguishes between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is destructive shame or feelings of guilt that have no productive movement leading you towards righteousness or towards repentance and faith. But godly sorrow, that is the felt guilt and shame that comes from an actual disintegrative action on our part that's tearing us apart, that's moving us away from God and hurting us in our relationship with those we love, it's meant to bring us into a restorative set of actions. Think how destructive it is secularly if we go, that emotion, I won't distinguish between those two things. It's always this bad one, and so we should throw it out. Think how humanly, horrifically destructive that way of thinking is. How it will destroy your relationship with your children and your friends and your spouse. How it will make you a selfish, self-centered, self-justifying person. And how it will destroy your capacity to have a truly repentant heart towards God. And how it will destroy the integration of your own soul to continue to justify yourself when you're destroying yourself as though that's your true self. Right? This takes its toll on us, right? This psalmist says that it causes a brokenness for him. If you look at verse 20, he says, just listen to this verse. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. Scorn has broken my heart. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been able to admit to yourself that you feel that way? That scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. A lot of younger people that I know that are believers who live in our secular culture, they, they, really, they really believe in um, a privilege narrative relative to Christians, which is partly correct, okay? It's partly correct. In America, historically, there are a lot of ways and a lot of places in which Christians have been privileged. It's been good to be a Christian. It's been good to be a church member. That's still true in some places in the South. It's a good thing to be a church member. It helps you, right? When I was pastoring in Panama City, there's a certain kind of Christian privilege there. It was a real thing. Right? People who didn't believe would be members of churches because, you know, they wanted to be seen. They were thought of as moral people because they were Christians. That's not true here, guys. That's not true in Madison. Full stop. I mean, unless your church has a rainbow flag out in front, there is no benefit socially or morally, culturally, from being part of a church. 
You're considered morally suspect, probably stupid and unscientific. You definitely hate LGBT people, and so on. And <clears throat> it's important to recognize that because you, ha- you, you have to fall between believing what God says about the scorn you will receive for being pious towards him and not having a martyr complex. See, when younger people tell me, Nick, I don't think you should talk a lot about this. Like, we're persecuted and people hate us, blah, 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 that. Like, I'm like, um, why? Because the Bible says it, like, constantly. And people need to be morally and emotionally prepared for it. And they're like, well, because what happens is they get this martyr complex. And they're like, well, everybody hates me. And they can act like an idiot at their job that's not Christian at all. And they can say that people hate them because they're a Christian. And that's not emotionally healthy. And that just pushes people away. And it doesn't recognize that for years, Christians have been having privileged in this country, which is right. But this is a classic baby in bathwater situation. You don't make a truth false because you're afraid it will be believed wrongly. What you do is you have a fundamental principle and then a corrective principle, right? The pious will be scorned. Like our Savior, like God in all of his relations with human beings through the whole history of the Bible has been scorned by sinful humanity, his Christ was scorned by sinful humanity. His prophets were killed by his own religious covenant people. His true followers will face and receive scorn in this world, consistently and widely. And when we act unrighteously, we shouldn't believe that, like, that's happening because we're Christians, right? And I don't know if you know this, but that critique is in this psalm. It's, it always blows my mind when this, this happens a lot with younger people who are struggling with their faith being, like, deconstructed. They're like, you know, the Bible says a lot of religious stuff, but there's, you know, there's a lot of good critiques of religion out there in the world by these secular and postmodern people, and like, you know, maybe we should listen to them. You, y'all, every good critique of religion that has ever existed is in the Bible. Like, thousands of years before the philosophers you are quoting. They're all here. Like, listen, it says here, he, the, David's saying, Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. And he says this. You know my folly, O God, and my guilt is not hidden from you. May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, O Lord, the Lord Almighty. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. She's saying, now, remember, it's poetry. This isn't philosophy. It's poetry. You have to convert it into philosophy and translate it. What he's saying is, he's saying, listen, people hate me without reason. I am receiving legitimate scorn for real piety. He's like, but listen, God, I know before you, I am not a good man. Like, there is plenty to scorn me for. There is plenty in my life to hate me for. There is plenty to judge me for. It's not the things these people are hating me for, but there's a lot of things to hate me for. I'm not a good man. And my greatest hope then is, is that my real faults won't get mixed together with my supposed piety and produce in me a set of behaviors that will lead to the cultural scorn, even of these people who hate you. But I don't want to even do something that leads to them scorning your believers who are truly pious. And I know I'm imminently capable of that because I am corruptible even in the depths of my piety. Which, listen, if you follow that logically and philosophically— I have never read a secular or postmodern critique of religion that is that careful, that is that spot on, that is that, that psychologically apt. It is centuries superior to what we are yet producing. And it's in the Bible. You will find in God's word, in his word, all of the critiques of religion 
necessary to keep us faithful to God's true teaching about himself so that we can, in our pursuit of piety, not only not fall into irreligion, but not fall into legalism. God is always pushing us back and forth between those to himself. Okay, I gotta keep moving, guys. Sorry. Um, It's important to recognize here that therefore the Christian position is not if you really know your identity in Christ, you won't be hurt by people's scorn. I think sometimes churches can convey that. Even churches that really care about Christians' emotions, like charismatic churches, they'll talk a lot about, like, knowing your identity in Christ, which is a super important thing. It was the first thing in the list of piety, I said, right? Like, that we identify with a God who is in personal identity, right? That's, who are you in Christ? What does, it, what does it make you? The fact that in Christ you are approved, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, and that if God is for you, who can be against you, does not keep you or Im- make you immune to feeling scorn, shame, and disgrace. When people hate your guts, it's still going to hurt your feelings. When people think you didn't do it right, you didn't handle that well, you just don't understand. Like, yeah, maybe you were trying to be good, but you weren't good, right? You don't—what happens inside your real human being is not like, well, I'm—you know, I'm one with Christ, and I'm, like, in the heavenlies with him, and, I, like, I'm—you know, Christ and I are united in a mystical bond that you cannot destroy, and you cannot track that with a thousand bloodhounds, and you can't break it with a thousand swords, and what like you, like you, that's, that's not what happens. What happens is you feel terrible. And then you think, wait, as a Christian, I'm not supposed to feel terrible. I'm supposed to know who I am in Christ. And then you think, well, wait, why doesn't this Christian spirituality work? And then you'll think, well, why is the Holy Spirit letting me down and making it so that I feel terrible even when I'm attacked, when I shouldn't be if I know who I am in Christ? And wait a second, Christianity doesn't work. But if Christianity doesn't work and God stands behind it, then Christianity isn't true. And if Christianity is true, then Jesus isn't real and God isn't real. Do you see the progression there? And that's happening while you're feeling terrible and emotional and upset. So it feels 100% rationally logical, and you can throw your faith in the garbage over the course of 20 minutes, 20 seconds, or 20 years. When in fact, God says all through the Bible, everywhere, that we do not overcome these things because we're immune to them. There is no vaccine for shame. There's only health that overcomes it. Right? What that means, but then you're like, well, well, how do we do that? And it's important to realize how. You, the, the immune system of the Christian faith, which overcomes the pain of scorn and hatred, is the acts of piety themselves. Like, what does David do when he feels like he is literally up to here in the water, and he's afraid it's going to close over him, and he's going to be devoured by all the people who hate his guts? Because that's what he's talking about. Two, in two verses, deep water and people who hate me are in peril. That's what he's talking about. Are the people who hate me going to destroy me? God, are you going to save me? What does he do? He mourns and fasts before God, a spiritual action of prayer. He writes a poem which includes at least two direct prayers. He confesses honestly to God exactly how he feels in two different sections. He expre- and he expresses that he just feels completely helpless, right? And then— He chooses to pray and worship, knowing that that's right, whether he feels it or not at the end. I will worship the Lord. I will praise him. The poor will see and be glad. I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to break apart. I'm not going to come apart. I'm going to keep treading water. Right? You see how he gives himself to these actions of devotion, which is, of course, psychologically the last thing you want to do when you feel hurt. Right? When you're actually up to here, and you feel like you've cried out all you can, and your eyes are dry from looking for the good, and you think God has completely abandoned you, the last thing you emotionally want to do naturally is engage in actions of disciplined piety. 
And yet, do you see? That's exactly what he does. He turns to the God who in his pain he would otherwise think abandon him. And friends, listen. When you're struggling, whether or not you choose to come to church, whether or not you choose to pray to the Lord, whether or not you choose to read your Bible, whether or not you choose to move in whatever way you can in whatever spiritual discipline you know to move towards God versus away from him is the decision to keep or lose your faith. That is the decision because that's their trajectory. If in it you wallow and you allow yourself to be moving towards the people who are scorning you, you're submitting to their intimidation of you spiritually and morally and and emotionally, and you will move toward them in order to implicitly get their acceptance over time. Or you realize they're never going to love you unless they come to repentance, and you have to move towards the one who is great and who loves you and is right for you to be one with, which is the Lord, and you choose to move towards him in whatever way you know, and the ways he's given us to do that are these things we call practices of piety or spiritual disciplines. Prayer, worship, fasting, reading the word of God, meditating on his truths, being honest with him personally, moving to him in actions of intimacy, right? Which leads to the last thing, and I'll try to wrap this up quickly, which is piety is, preserves us or causes us to persevere through intimacy. Because think about what you're doing. If you choose to move towards God, that's an act of intimacy, right? You're moving towards, as a person, you're moving towards the person of God so that in that interpersonal relationship, you can be strengthened, helped, encouraged, moved. You can, you can feel stable in who you are because you come face to face with God or you come into a closer relationship. That's what intimacy does for us in all of our relationships, right? Intimacy basically is the closeness of personal mutuality. I'm a person, you're a person. We come into closeness with one another. In that interchange of that personal closeness, there's all kinds of payoffs that come because we're personal creatures. Sometimes we forget how relational and personal and emotional and human we are. And God is a person, and other people are persons. And because of that, that's why people, listen, that's why people, what do, if, imagine a girl who's like 15 years old, she's ignored by her parents, she's not having success at school, she doesn't like what her body looks like. What's she most in danger of? Right? Falling into the arms of some idiot, Right? If you don't believe that, you haven't been alive long enough, okay? Like, that's what she's most in danger of. Why? Because on a level that you can't explain, you know even false intimacy is the thing that feels the best in the loss of all other comforts and connections. And you know that that connection and that comfort is going to have real payoffs for you, even if in the long term it's profoundly destructive. Right? And you see— Intimacy with God, pursuing the person of God as the person of yourself and drawing close to him in whatever way you know provides pleasure, comfort, strength, confidence, security, hope, and joy that is necessary to keep treading water, to keep pushing forward, and to keep moving on. Right? I used to say this at weddings. There, when I was a wilderness leader, I used, to, um, I used to lead trips to this place called Pitchoff Mountain. And Pitchoff Mountain had this cliff that came away from the mountain that you could go down into, and there's caves in there. It was a really cool place. And the reason why—and and I remember Eric Bazell saying, you know, eventually this will get all the way out, and it'll fall and crash into the road. Because every year, water gets in here, right? And it freezes, and it thaws, and it freezes. And when, when water freezes, it presses outward, right? And it breaks out roads apart here in Wisconsin, right? It, that, because if the pressure gets between two things and freezes, the pressure comes from within and pushes out, right? But if you put a quarter— 
on a train track and a penny on top of it and tape it down, it looks like that. Because the pressure is from the outside pressing in. You see, you're going to face pressure. You're going to face pressure everywhere. And all of your relationships are going to be tested by pressure. In fact, that is the test of intimacy in your relationships. Like, sometimes in, we want to test intimacy with like, you know, like how heated our romance is, I think is the most discreet way I can say it. Or like that we can finish each other's sentences or I know everything about my other person, right? Like, isn't, you know, it, isn't that mean where we have an intimate relationship? No. The, the test of the intimacy of a relationship is what you, who you run to when there's pressure and pain and scorn. Right? If, like, if you, if you're, like, wanting to quarrel or bicker with your other person, and yet you have this desire to still move towards them, that's an indication that there's real intimacy that can bear real weight in your relationship. If when you get in an argument, you just want to run from that person and push them away and add them into the scorn, and actually sort of, like, evoke scorn in them to push you further away, your intimacy is breaking down. That's a much better test than how well you know somebody. And what we have to do as believers is recognize that pressure will always exist. If we let it between us and God, it will freeze and freeze and push and freeze and push and freeze and push and freeze and push and freeze and push, and it will push us away from God. And it, but if we hold close to God and move close to Him, and we allow that pressure to be on the outside of us, and the only way it can push us is in, and it moves us closer and closer and closer and closer to God, and it crushes us together, the result will be union with Christ and being transformed into the image of God through the renewal of our minds. That's what the result will be. Right? And you might be like, Nick, this is really hard. <laughs> that sounds really hard. It is really hard. It is very hard. Um, but, but one of the questions is, if you are going to embrace what it means to be the pious sufferer of Psalm 69 in your life, one of the things you need to realize is, who was the real Psalm 69 sufferer? Right? And the answer is, not even Jesus first. It's God first. Who is the ultimate one who always does right, has the right devotion, has the right identity, tells the right truths, and does all the right actions only to be scorned and hated for it? Just read the Old Testament. It's God. And then God raises up these spokesmen to behave and speak like him, called prophets. And what do, what do even God's religious people do, right? They kill them, right? Jesus said that. Is there ever a prophet your fathers didn't kill? You think that you're on God's right side, and yet you're not in the line of the pious. You're in the line of the murderers, which is true for us. We, we always think we're wearing the white hat in the stories we're part of, and, and the likelihood is we're not. And the only chance you have of being the person who wore the white hat is if the whole time you were making sure you weren't the person wearing the black hat because that's what you were afraid of. Right? And then Jesus comes along, and it's his piety that gets him hated. Right? It said, remember when he turns over the tables in the temple? He says, how dare you turn my father's house into a, a den of thieves? It says, and then the disciples remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. Where's that from? It's from this song. Right? Jesus, why? Because the insults that, like, it was an insult to God to turn that place of worship into a market. It's an insult. And that insult that was on, being, being perpetrated on God every day fell on Jesus. He looked at that. He's like, oh my gosh, you can't do this. And he started turning stuff over and flipping things and acting in a way that was socially inappropriate among religious people who would consider themselves believing. Do you understand? And listen, let me just an addendum to this. When younger people get really excited about Jesus and they start flailing around in the church telling us we're doing everything wrong, just be really careful about being mean to them. Because if they're, if they're doing it honestly— like, give them some room. 
Because it's better that than cynicism in playing the game. Don't mature. Right? And then Jesus is the pious sufferer. He's the one given vinegar on the cross because he has no comforters. And then he doesn't call down judgment. He speaks the word of mercy. Why? Because even among those who scorn him, he's inviting them into intimacy with God. He wants them to come. He wants you to come. He wants me to come. Right? He wants us to give up our scorn, to see him as a righteous sufferer, and realize how much it impugns us for hating him so that we move towards him. Right? And then lastly, he promises that he, as the righteous sufferer, will ultimately be the righteous judge. When David says, let them be taken away and let nobody be there, blot their name out of the book of life and utterly destroy them, that is the promise of Christ in the end. In the end, if we will not receive his invitation of mercy as he drinks the vinegar of, a, of our hatred for his comfort, if in that moment where he invites us to love him and to come into intimacy with him, be pressed together to be one with him, if we reject it and demand that we get to remain scorners and shamers of the one that the human race has scorned and shamed forever, then ultimately he will come and do what the righteous, pious sufferers deserve, which is to have righteous judgment executed in vengeance against those who have no regard for the good. And that's not the side we're going to want to be on when that happens. And so the, the point here is that God wants to thaw our hearts to move towards him, the righteous sufferer, the truly pious one who is scorned, and to embrace it recognizing that it is the thing that will make us the most like Christ. Receiving the rejection of the world, accepting it, allowing it to press us in a lonely way into Christ and to those who want to be his pious ones fully is the thing that will make us the most like Christ and so that we won't embrace any of the counterfeits between scorn and piety. It is the freedom of God and it is what will make you like Christ, which is the most valuable thing there is. Father, as we, um, as we sing a song in response here and as we do a little bit of AMA maybe, um, will you please help us to face this? Will you help us to so look at this so that we can face the, the difficulty of scorn but recognize that when, if we turn to you in our scorn, it's going to lead to intimacy with you, into transformation, into being like Christ, into the most valuable thing that you offer us. And though we may hate the process for its pain, that we can love the gift for its good. Help us to have the faith and the courage to follow you in this way. And help us to see what a privilege it is to have the potential to live in Psalm 69 in our lives, knowing that you have always been the righteous sufferer. And the more we are like the pious righteous sufferer in Psalm 69, the more we are like you. Help us to wear that with joy in Jesus' name. Amen.